This is Rabbi Josh Uter of the Stanton Street Shul. Thank you for downloading this class podcast. These classes are provided free of charge through the generosity of the Stanton Street Shul community and supporters like you. If you do enjoy them, please consider making a donation to our synagogue's building fund on our website's shop donate page at www.stantonstshul.com. Good evening. It is Wednesday, May 28th, 2014, and the subject for tonight's current Jewish questions is evolution. And the reason why I love this topic is because it is one major theological red herring. Because what we're discussing today really isn't going to be about evolution. Right? That, that's not the question. Um, I mean, for one, I'm not a scientist. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you could find fairly decent information on the web about evolution. Most of you probably have heard of Darwin, Origin of Species, and know at least some idea of evolutionary theory and the Big Bang and all that. But that's not the real question. That That's not, I mean, for science, it's an interesting question. For us, you know, that has very little to do with Judaism. The real question that yet we have to grapple with and that we will be grappling with today is what happens when there is scientific or otherwise empirical evidence that seems to contradict what the Torah says, or to phrase it slightly differently, to what extent are we obligated, expected, however, whatever adverb I should say you want to use there, right? Or what is the religious mandate? That's a good way of putting it, of believing that, or assuming that what the Torah says, taking the Torah at face value from a historical perspective, or from an outright purely literary, like this is, you know, as it is, is exactly the way that it has to be and must be. All right, that's the real question behind evolution. Um, and naturally, you're going to find a huge, 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 huge range of opinions on this. I mean, this is not a new question. It might be current because people are still arguing over this, but that doesn't mean it's a new question. Um, and again, you can find lots of literature on this. We're only going to focus on a couple of sources and try to give just one approach. Um, we'll focus on approaches of reconciliation uh, because the other side, which I'm I'm not going to say that these sources don't exist, but they're pretty simple. We don't need to spend too much time on it. And it would go simply, well, you have to believe in what the Torah says regardless of what science says. Like, all right, fine. Um, that's a very hard position to argue against. Um, I, there, there's a quote that I posted from John Stuart Mill, um, which is really important. It was from the book on the subjection of women. And he writes about how it's really hard to argue logically from someone who's taking an illogical position. Because it means you have to prove why you're right, you have to prove why they're wrong, and even if you do that, they're going to double down and say, ah, this is what it means to be a person of faith. Where despite this preponderance of scientific evidence, here Here's what I believe with a complete and full heart. Mm-hmm. So those opinions are out there. Um, you know, can find them, subscribe to them. The question is, again, are they the only opinions? Well, the answer is going to be no, right? So there are going to be alternatives, even though, you know, they may reject them. So first, you know, yeah, questions already? Sure. Yeah, no, my three grandchildren were never taught 
evolution in yeshiva because I've had discussions mm-hmm. with them. Right. So in terms of being taught evolution, I'm trying to remember uh, what they, what we did in high school. Uh, we had AP Bio. Um, remember when he put some pieces about it, but the truth is, for most bio classes, I mean, it was knowing like what evolution was. But for a high school class, you know, knowing what evolution is or not knowing what evolution is, in a weird way, doesn't really matter. And by which I mean, you know, you have a lot of, you know, there's a, a lot of Orthodox observant Jews who are doctors. Maybe they believe in evolution, maybe don't. I don't know. I'm not about to take a poll. That doesn't mean they can't be effective physicians. That doesn't mean they can't be effective psychologists, psychiatrists, or whatever. Um, you know, we, whether or not you believe in evolution, if you know what the Krebs cycle is, and you can describe photosynthesis. You can still do research on plants, right? You can still follow scientific methods. So even if you don't teach evolution because it contradicts something in the Torah, in my limited understanding of science, and you please correct me if I'm wrong because you've got a much better science background than I do on this, it doesn't necessarily preclude actual sci- actual scientific advancement. It may if you're doing evolutionary biology, Right, then it would probably be a problem. But if you're a surgeon, whether or not, I mean, from what little I know about surgery, whether or not you believe in whatever, if you know how to cut, where to cut, and how the body works based on the best of modern medicine, what happened, you know, 150 some odd years ago, probably doesn't matter that much. Hopefully, that's not going through your head when you're actually doing an operation. All right, so. You know, that's an important component. But evolution is still one of these bugaboos that, like you mentioned, people get very upset about because, well, it contradicts the Torah. But the truth is, you know, the reason why I extended it beyond just purely evolution is, you know, you have archaeology that comes up that gives you the exact same question. What happens when you've got archaeological data that seems to contradict what was written in our Torah? For historical purposes, just to give you one example, there's a lot of literature out on um, the 600,000 number uh, of, Ju- of Jews traveling in the wilderness. Would that be an accurate number? Some reasons for skepticism are as follows, that if that number, remember, it's probably more than 600,000, because if the census is just on, you know, men who are of army, you know, service, then what about all the women and kids? But let's just say 600,000 alone. The distance between Egypt and Israel is not that long, right? So, yes, they took a circuitous scenic route for it to take 40 years. 600,000 people living in a fairly confined area for such a long time, the argument should have left some remnants or a lot more remnants than we would have today. Additionally, what was the infrastructure like of the land of Israel at the time they moved in? Could they have withstood the influx of all of these people at once? Those are reasons for skepticism. This isn't to say that, you know, is or isn't. I'm, again, providing arguments just to illustrate that empirical evidence, it's not just evolution. It extends far beyond this subject. All right. So, you know, um, we'll start off with a Gemara. Then I think we'll help illustrate the point. We're only doing one Gemara, uh, one Gemara today, and you'll, I'll, I'll explain what. Do you pass the water, please? So this is a Gemara in Chagiga 13b to 14a. Thank you. Yeah, Josh. Um, you just saw it. Rabbi Shimon, the pious, said, 
These are the 974 generations who pressed themselves forward to be created before the world was to be created before the world was created, but were not created. The Holy One, blessed be He, arose and planted them in every generation, and it is they who are the insolent of each generation. This is a, uh, we're coming into this in mid-conversation here. It's, the Avraham Shimon Hatzadik, uh, Hasid, I'm sorry, is giving an interpretation of a particular verse. Okay, but what's this interpretation? That there were 974 generations that existed before the world was created. Well, how does that happen? Mm-hmm. Right? Now, this is a fun source. Uh, for people who come Friday night, uh, for the past you know five and a half years you know, since I've really been here, we've been teaching Midrashim from Midrash Rabbah. Midrash Rabbah gives you reads of the Torah that are not found in the Torah. So here you have a Midrash, right? You have some exposition that seems to contradict the Genesis narrative about how people were created because he's positing the some existence of humanity, maybe even only in spiritual or astral form, but there's some existence of humanity before humans were created. Bible doesn't say that, right? Now you could say, well, maybe because it's spiritual, it doesn't actually contradict. Okay, but you're still reading into things that the Bible doesn't say. And Midrashim do this often. Um, Now, people can say, well, maybe this is part of some theological tradition. Perhaps. The problem there is that there are far too many Midrashim that are mutually contradictory. So here would be one example. Um, there's a dispute in the Gemara over Paro. At the very beginning of Shemot, we're told, A new king arose who did not know Joseph. So there's a dispute whether or not it was an actual new king, or was it, a new, was it the same king who just forgot about Joseph? Both of them have their bases. But only one of them is going to be right from a pure historical perspective. The king cannot both be the same king and a different king. One of them is going to be wrong from a historical perspective. All right. Additionally, even from theology, you've got mutually contradictory opinions. One of my favorite ones is a source in Midrash Rabbah, uh, where Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi says that Bereshit, the book in the whole Torah, begins with a bet. Why? Because just as a bet has, if you know the shape of the bet, it has a wall in front of you, a wall above you, and a wall below you, so too you should not extrapolate and meditate on what's above, what's below, what's to come, and what was. And you've got hundreds of Midrashim that do that very thing. Mm-hmm. All right? So I'm only citing one example because you know we could spend just way, way, way too much time on this. But Chazal had no problems with extrapolating oh, not just Bration, not just the creation narrative, but a whole lot of other historical events. I mean, we're talking Midrash Agadah, not Midrash Halacha here. We're not talking about legal exegesis. We're talking about homiletical exegesis. They did not seem bound by the literal shot of the text to the exclusion of any other possibility. All right? And again, you know, this is stuff which, if you come to Friday Night regularly here, by now you should pick up on that idea, just based on the number of Midrashim that we've happened to have learned. All right? So just from Chazal alone, 
you don't have a mandate explicitly you know that says ah oh, here's what you must believe in these regards it's assumed god created the world but in terms of the details lots and lots of fuzziness all right so let's fast forward a bit we're going to focus uh, we're going to shift a bit to rambam um only because culturally rambam has been very influential in terms of determining what the bounds so to speak are of legitimate orthodox theology so let's see what he says on this uh the first source that we're going to do is from his introduction to chalak which is um uh, it's the introduction to chapter in Sanhedrin. Rambam wrote a commentary to Mishnah. And this chapter begins with, Kol Yisrael yeshlem chelek every Jew has a portion in the world to come, and then lists a bunch of exceptions. So in the introduction to this, his commentary to the Mishnah of this chapter is where Rambam writes, or at least the beginnings of the 13 principles of faith. That What you have in the Siddur is a condensed version, which is not entirely accurate. Um, so we're going to see what he actually says inside. So, Sam? The first fundamental principle is the existence of the Creator. For example, the existence of a being who is perfect in all manners of perfection. He is the cause of the existence of all other beings, and from him they derive their continued existence. If one imagined that his existence would cease, all other existence would be nullified and would be no longer, and would no longer continue to be. Conversely, however, if all other existence ceased, he would not continue to exist and would not be lacking, for he is not dependent on any other being and himself. Everything in existence other than him, even the entities whose existence is on the plane of intellect, for example, the angels and the forms of the orbits, and surely the lower forms of existence depend on him for their being. This is the first fundamental principle, and it is alluded to in the commandment, I am God, your Lord. All right, so what do you, how do you, how do, what do you think about this relation to our question? This is how Ramam describes the very, very, very first principle about belief in the existence of God. How do you think this plays into the question that we need to ask? Of evolution? Well, of evolution, or again, the more specific question of an obligation to believe in the historicity of the Torah. And we're going to focus on creation for right now. Mm-hmm. So what do you think? Pro, con, inconclusive. Those would be three answers. So what do you think? I think it would seem pro. Okay, based on what? Well, just that he's basically, I mean, he's pretty clear. He's just kind of saying that you know, anything that has ever come or anything along those lines is all from one central creator, that he's mm-hmm. not dependent on anything. It's all from him, his will, and everything along those okay. lines. So, Sam, how do you read this? I mean, I know you just did, but, like, <laughs> comprehension-wise, did it leave any impressions? Um, I, I think similarly. I think, mm-hmm. uh, he's, he's saying that it all sort of trickles down from him, from the creator, and without him, nothing else exists. Sure. Riso? Yeah, the same thing. It, it just says that it's all coming from, from God. So we all agree. Okay, yeah. so there seems to be a full consensus here on that part. Except one little quirk of what's missing here. The assumption that Rambam seems to be working with, at least here, is that belief, at least, that there is a God who is responsible for the creation. But in terms of how did that creation actually happen, that seems to be left a little bit open, at least for this particular source. The creation of the world? Yeah. Mm. Right? Meaning, right, 
where he said, take uh, Rambam Hilchot Shuvah 3 7. Um, and as we saw when we did the biblical criticism, Shear, when it comes to the theological stuff, it's always important when you're discussing Rambam to see where he might discuss something elsewhere, particularly. And the Mishnah Torah, which for him is more of a normative halachic work, as a, which he also wrote 20 years after he wrote the commentary to Mishnah. So there was, you know, a few decades to refine the thought, write it intentionally for a popular audience, but something that was supposed to be more instruct, more, uh, what's a good word for it? Obligatory would be an interesting way, but, ah. Something along those lines. There's a better word for it. It's not coming to me. So this is Rambam Hilchotshuva 3.7. Five individuals are described as minim. One who says there is no God nor ruler of the world. One who accepts the concept of a ruler but maintains that there are two or more. One who accepts that there is one master of the world but maintains that he has a body or form. One who maintains that he was not the sole first being and creator of all existence, and one who serves a star constellation or other entity so that it will serve as an intermediary between him and the eternal Lord. Each of these five individuals is a min. Right, so the ones that are really pertinent to us um, are going to be A and D. Right, because the others involve all their multiple gods, or God having a body, um, or any other intermediary. Those they're important, but not for this particular conversation. All right. So the first one is right. If you say there is no God and no ruler of the world, or that there was something that predated God, well, then that puts you in the category of men. Okay, but he doesn't seem to say anything here about belief in specifically that the way the Torah wrote things is to be taken as 100% literal historical fact. Okay? Mm-hmm. That doesn't, doesn't seem to say it here. doesn't see it to say in the Ramam Chalak. Now, before we get into the next source, which is from his Guide to the Perplexed, what do you think may be the impetus for the desire to take the Bible as literal historical fact? What do you think would be the theological reason to do so? Well, it's simply easier. It's just it's just a smoother. I mean, it gives you something to work from. If you when, once you start once you start doubting that anything in it isn't true, it, it kind of all crumbles. Bam! Right there. right there, right. If we're going to operate under the assumption that God gave us a Torah, right, and that this book is from the divine, then why would God lie? Right? If you want to believe that the Torah is true and it's from God and there's you know a whole lot of that association, well then, you know, putting in wacky stuff seems to be wacky. Right? Meaning if it's just supposed to be a law book, well then give us a bunch of laws and that's it. Like here's what the Lord said, do this, don't do that. Um I mean Rashi, you know, does say at the very beginning of Bereshit, well, you know, why did we even have to bother with the whole book of Genesis because there wasn't a single command? Well whatever. I, there, forget about well I was about to say there's no single commandment there, but you get into things like Puravu and Gidanash or whatever. But like you don't have God telling the Jewish people as a whole, because the Jewish people didn't really exist, 
right at that point. It's just creation of the world. Like it was the development of the Jewish people. So Rashi says, "Oh, it's really all about Maratamach Pela." It's like that whole thing. Show that Avraham, you know, bought this, you know, kever for his wife. Ah, oh, so that means we've got some association, you know, to the land of Israel. Um, shockingly, uh, it it's, hasn't proved to be a very convincing argument for others, um, but. You know, that's an argument there. But the question is still valid. Meaning, if the whole point of the Bible is for us to do God's will, and God is very explicit about doing his will, you can really cut out the book of Genesis, right? Save, you know, we can get Simchas Torah more often, or have shorter partios, make bar mitzvahs a little bit easier, right? Why do you include it there, especially if it isn't true? All right? Fair question there. So there's some ways of addressing that. Um, one that we're going to look at, this is an excerpt from Rambam's Mora Nebuchadnezzar, the Guide to the Perplex, something that we don't really do here that often. Uh, because despite being called the Guide to the Perplexed, usually leaves people feeling even more confused. It is really, really not an easy book to read. And the amount of literature that's been spent on trying to interpret and reinterpret it is just far too massive. Um, you know, I, there's an English translation here. I've been told that someone's working on an updated English translation. Um, this is not an easy work, which is, again, why we don't do it. So for one, uh, before, in, in the same chapter, but earlier, he writes regarding prophets that they often spoke in metaphors and in poetry, meaning the fact that a prophet would say that, quote, the mountains will move doesn't mean that they physically have to move. It can be the use of poetic imagery. Mm-hmm. In which case, are they lying? Well, it depends on how you treat prophecy, right? If you treat prophecy as, oh, it must be historical, well, then yes, it is lying. If it's a metaphor or there are ways of interpreting it, well, then no, you've got a little bit more latitude to play with. Although a little, because Rambam also says that, you know, if a prophet comes and predicts something is going to happen and it doesn't come true, that's how you know it's a Navi Sheker and then you've got to kill the guy. But pull that off for a side, we know that words can be interpreted in different ways. We know that, you know, texts can be reinterpreted. We know that there's poetry. We know what metaphors are. In which case, you know, a metaphor isn't a lie as much as in one language, Dibra Torah Kilashon B'nai Adam, that the Torah will speak in the language of men. All right? That's an answer that people give. That's an answer that Rambam gives for why does the Torah use anthropomorphisms, meaning attributing to God physical characteristics, when as we just saw in Truva 3.7, God doesn't have a body. So if God doesn't have a body, what's this Yad Chazaka Zoranutuya business? This, you know, strong, outstretched arm and strong hand and all that. What's the Etzbel Okim, the finger of God? Doesn't have a body. That doesn't make sense. So, again ways that you can interpret that. Here's how, or at least here's an approach that you will find, and this is again in Rambam, Marnavuchim 2.29. I've said that such a thing does not change its nature in such a way that the change is permanent merely in order to be cautious with regard to the miracles. For although the rod was turned into a serpent, the water into blood, and the pure and noble hand became white without a natural cause, 
that that necessitated this. Sorry, these and similar things were not permanent, and they did not become another nature. But they, but as they, may the memory be blessed, say, the world goes its customary way. In Hebrew, it's olam kamin hago holech, or you will find olam kamin hago noheg in other gemaras. Right, the world just goes along its path. This in is my opinion, and this is what ought to be believed. The sages, may their memory be blessed, have made a very strange statement about miracles, in the text of which you will find in Brashat Rabbah and in Midrash Kohelet. This notion in their holding the view that miracles too are something that is, in a certain respect, nature. They say that when God created that which exists and stamped upon it existing natures, he put into these natures all the miracles that occurred, all the miracles that occurred would be produced in them at the time they occurred. So, first level of what Rambam is saying is, let's take the example of the splitting of the sea. So Rambam could, would argue, would that be a miracle? In theory, it might seem that way, but a way to look at it is that it wasn't actually a deviation or a change from nature. Rather, God God set normal things in motion such that there was an innate characteristic of the Red Sea, of the Yamsuf, that it would split at this appointed time, such that it did not change its intrinsic nature. Fascinating. Now, assuming we take this logic this could easily be applied to a whole lot of areas of science or human development. You think in a moment about, you know, people will say the miracle of life. By now, we take it for granted because we see it so often. But from what little I know of the human body, there are so many interlocking, intertwining things that go on on a microscopic level just to keep us functioning, mm-hmm. right? You can say, well, that's kind of miraculous too, but we take that as, well, nature. But what about evolution? Right? Evolution is something that can happen over generations. Right? But that could just very well be nature. It could be God set things up in motion and let things continue along their normal path as was created, which today we would call nature and we would call the scientific world. Right? Remember what we learned last week with Nishtaneha Teva, right? where nature changed. Mm-hmm. Right? A little bit of a oh, did nature change? From our perspective, sure, it could be nature changed, or at least the result of nature can change. But, you know, I mean, we remember some of the examples was people back then used to live longer than people do now. So for them, it seemed like nature changed. Mm-hmm. But for all we know, their diet changed and they were eating less healthy, you know, or any other reasons. Like someone who smokes develops lung cancer, right? You can say, oh, Nishtana Hateva, like something weird. I was like, no, you actually did something very damaging to your body over a long period of time, and so you became sick because of that. All right? Depending on your perspective, was that nature or was that nature changed? Your nature changed because you introduced something to it to make it change. We don't really know. Any thoughts or questions so far? It seems, seems logical, logical enough, I guess. I mean, I just don't understand you know, the whole idea of evolution. I guess I don't kind of see where it where it falls in chronologically, though. So, here would be a way of phrasing it. Let's say God creates the world, mm-hmm. okay? So how does that reconcile with what we, ha- what we know of evolution, or 
so why not God created the world one way and animals evolved over time? Like just in the first six, day, six days of creation or just kind of sure. spread out a little bit? Let's say the creation of the world was the Big Bang, uh-huh. right? That fits really well into Rambam, mm-hmm. right? Let's say you believe God was the cause of the Big Bang and that's how creation happened. Mm-hmm. That seems to fit in with Rambam, mm-hmm. right? Or at least based on the Ikaria Muna, based on, you know, the, uh, whatchamacallit, ba- based on Hilchot Shuv in terms of belief on God. Now, how do you reconcile that with contradicting the Torah? Well, say, that was Olam Kimin Hago Noeg. God assuming controls physics, sets things up in motion, puts it up this way, and you know writes it by means of a metaphor. Problem solved. Mm-hmm. Right? Doesn't have to be that extreme. Um, although I will throw in this one issue that you know things do come up, um, and part of where the idea comes is there's a book called Seder Olam Rabbah, which is a rabbinic text that you know has a whole chronology of like when stuff happened um, that people will take as dogma. But no one actually, you know, poskin that you must believe in this as actual historical evidence. Um, the other question that comes up in terms of the actual misinformation is the whole age of the universe. All right. So, I mean, by our counting, it's 5,000 ever many years. And, you know, and a lot of that's based on Seder al too. Fine. Um which, you know, Seder Olam Rabbah, in theory, could also get it wrong. I mean, we don't believe that it was written through prophetic... Well, I shouldn't say that. I'm sure someone out there might believe that was either written prophetically or was... That, too, was directly part of the tradition at Sinai and, for all intents and purposes, also came from God. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but this that actually gets to an interest. So one common um, answer that's usually given is the whole, well, when the Torah says a day, does it mean a 24-hour day? Or does it mean some other extended period of time? Uh, funny story about this, where two of my teachers at Yeshiva University, one a Rosh Yeshiva, the other a uh, Bible professor, and all uh, they're... Yeah, uh, got into an argument about this where the Bible professor suggested that and the Rosh Hashiva called it the cosmic joke theory. What do you mean the cosmic joke theory? It's like, well, God's not going to say a day if he meant 5,000 years. I said, oh, okay, then why did God write the Torah but make it look like four people did it? I didn't get the answer to that question, but it was a, quite amusing for the whole... Okay, I thought it was funny. Um, but here's something else that I think is a lot more essential to this question. If we assume, again, uh, that the Bible is God's will, right? God is pretty explicit about what God wants us to do and believe. Have faith in God? Sure. Do what God says? Absolutely. Rarely does God play the I created the world card. Here's one of the few examples I know where he does. This is at the end of Sefer Eov, uh, chapter 38, 1 through 11. Uh, but this thing actually goes on for a whole lot longer. Just up until 11, you know, we'll get the point across. Then the Lord spoke to, to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with, word, with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me, if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? 
on on what mere on what were its footings on what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb when i made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness when i fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place when i said this far this far you may come and no farther here is where your your proud waves halt and it goes on like this for a really long time okay ultimate point is Seems that God kind of laid it all out for us. He created everything. Yes, but how is this presented to Eov? Just from this paragraph, what do you think is the point of God coming in and telling him this? I mean, it, it seems to be done kind of forcefully almost. Like God is kind of saying, like, you know, I'm big cheese around these parts kind of a thing. And therefore, Sam? Therefore, listen to me because no one else knows. Bingo. No one else knows, right? One of the few times God actually plays the I created the world card was to tell people, you actually don't really know what happened. Mm -hmm. So don't pretend like you know how the world works. Don't pretend like you know me. It's one of the reasons why I love these chapters, because this is the smackdown to religious hubris. Mm -hmm. Uh, Although technically, Eov wasn't, whatever. That wasn't a comment on Eov, but... Nowhere does God say, in at least the Old Testament, you have to believe all of the history that this happened is actual history. What do you see God saying? Do what I say. Keep my mitzvot. In terms of matter of faith or historical belief, does God actually command that? God commands that you believe in God. Well, sure. Does God say you must believe in the creation narrative exactly as how I laid out? Not in my Bible. I think that's very significant. Mm-hmm. And the fact that one of the few places in the Bible where God actually refers to it is to tell people, you don't know what the hell happened. So keep your full mouth shut. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on that? Seems fair enough. <laughs> okay. At any rate... Um, so to sort of like tie things a bit together here, um, the Rabbinical Council of America actually came out with a statement in 2005. Um, it says here, two, end of 2005, December 27th, uh, where in response to debate over intelligent design scientific theory, they've issued the following statement clarifying its view on this matter as it relates to Torah Judaism and the biblical account of creation. Uh, Sam, take the last paragraph on the page. There are authentic, respected voices in the Jewish community that take a literalist position with regard to these issues. At the same time, Judaism has a history of diverse approaches to the understanding of the biblical account of creation. As Rabbi Joseph Hertz wrote, while the fact of creation has to do... Has to this day. Has to this day remained the first of the articles of the Jewish creed, there is no uniform and binding belief as to the manner of creation. For example, as to the process whereby the universe came into existence. The manner of the divine creative activity is presented in varying forms and under differing metaphors by prophet, psalmist, and sage, by the rabbis in Talmudic times, as well as by our medieval Jewish thinkers. Some refer to the Midrash, Koheleth Rabbah 313, 
which speaks of God developing and destroying many worlds before our current epoch. Others explain that the, that the word yom in biblical Hebrew, usually translated, translated as day, can also refer to an undefined period of time, as in Isaiah 11, 10 to 11. Maimonides stated that what the Torah writes about the account of creation is not all to be taken literally, as believed by the masses. Which is from Guide to the Perplexed. Elsewhere in the thing that I quoted. Yeah. And recent rabbinic leaders who have discussed the topic of creation, such as Rabbi Samson, Raphael Hirsch, and Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, saw no difficulty in explaining Genesis as a theological text rather than a scientific account. And there you go. Again, if you want to hold, if if you're going to operate under the assumption of Rambam's Ikari Amuna and Rambam Hilchot Tshuva, so believe that there is a God and God was responsible for creating the world. How is it actually created? <coughs> you got room. You've got the biblical account. Does the biblical account have any practical effect on how we observe Judaism? Doesn't have to, mm-hmm. right? Whether or not God created the world in six days or it went through a big bang over a whole lot longer doesn't really affect it. We still keep Shabbos, right? And we can still say we do Shabbos because God told us to and here's what it's supposed to signify. And that can infuse it with meaning and we're still doing the will of God, right? And there doesn't necessarily need to be a contradiction behind it. Okay? Yeah. So when we have these questions that come up again, both with evolution or with any other data that might contradict the actual historical text, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that we're stuck in an actual conflict. Because, how to put this, uh, there's a quote attributed to Niles Bohr, uh, although I've been told it's not actually true. The opposite of a true statement is a false statement. The opposite of a profound truth may be another profound truth. If you view this stuff as having not just historical truth, but some other means of truth, it can can do a lot more with it. And again, since God didn't command you to take it as historical truth, you're not compelled, at least not by the God that this whole thing is about, uh, to really you know to really do. I think it really comes back to the point you made before about. You know, if if we can't, if people can't believe it, you know, boom, here's what it says. Just like everybody else in the Torah, they're afraid, or people would be afraid that things become unraveled. If this isn't true, what else isn't right or accurate, or what else is there hidden meaning behind? Similarly to last week with the whole yeah. thing with the rabbis, and could they be wrong? If yeah, wrong about that. What else are they wrong about? It's a similar. You're right, and I think this is where faith needs to advance and mature. Meaning, the way that you think about God when you're five shouldn't be the way you think about God when you're 25, mm-hmm. right? Now, when you're five, yes, those simple answers should be fine. But when you never progress from that, and you're still viewing the religion with a very juvenile approach, you're going to run into these issues. Mm-hmm. You know, and certainly if you're in yeshiva that don't encourage you to actually think or develop ideas, mm-hmm. it's going to be problematic. And look, there's so people out there who think that you need to take every single midrash as literal historical fact, even the ones that mutually contradict each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually saw one. We actually saw one this past uh, Sudashali sheet over when Yitzchak was born. That we got conflicting midrashim over, like when certain things have happened that could not possibly coexist. It happens, mm-hmm. you know. Again, from a historical perspective, someone's wrong. 
but the intent behind of what they're trying to do could still be correct either way that you look at something. All right? So hopefully the you know, end of the discussion here is that there really is not a necessary conflict between them. If you're a literalist, you are. But unfortunately, the ones who are literate, the ones who are literalists, truth is they're probably illiterate too, which is kind of ironic, but the ones who are literalists are also the ones who would sooner suppress any contradictory data that would go against their specific read of certain things, which is also interesting because in other areas, they will say, oh, the Torah doesn't actually mean what it says. Uh, that was a joke that I had of, you know, what you need to know about, one of the things you need to know about Orthodox Judaism is, you have to believe that God wrote the Torah, but he didn't really mean what he said. But people will say, like, oh, you have to, like, everything in Bereshit, you have to take as 100% literal fact. But that whole ayin tachet ayin, oh, it doesn't actually mean an eye for an eye, it means money. You know, why one is subject to, you know, interpretation versus the other has to be taken as straight dogma? I don't know, you'd have to ask them. Right, but at least from what I've shown here, you don't find God doing that. You don't find Chazal with that tradition, and we have a few options from the Rambam. And you know, again, even the RCA gives you a whole bunch of outs. And you know, the RCA is not considered a left-wing organization. All right, well, for some it might be considered a left-wing organization, but you know, all things considered, that's not where their reputation lies. Mm-hmm. All right, have a wonderful week.